If you guys would like to, you can flip to um, the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. I am just going to read a couple quick verses from it, so if you'd rather just listen, that's okay too. Kind of preface what Pastor Mike is going to be teaching on today. He's asked me to read Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. The little subtitle for this is uh, The Coming of Zion's King. Verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, dear daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a, of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Good morning, everyone. First time I've said hello to you collectively, so it's good to see your faces. If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 11 this morning, if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to do that, and if you did not bring it with you, there should be a Bible in the pew right in front of you, so if you want to grab that, find Mark chapter 11 this morning. As you're turning there, we've been going through the gospel of Mark, not forever, but for a while, and (laughs) thank you. Um... You guys, it's been, it's been a, a blast for me to go through uh, the Gospel of Mark with you, and, and something that kind of made me sad this week is as I begin my study for uh, this morning's message, I realize we are entering the final section of the Gospel of Mark. You can easily mark, um, mark, <laughs> mark the Gospel of Mark sections into three clear, distinct um, sections of study, and the beginning really focuses on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Uh, the middle section is the road that leads, leads excuse me, to Jerusalem, and then the final section that we begin this morning is Jesus entering Jerusalem. And so we're entering this final section, and regarding the passage that I had Christian read for us this morning, since the days of David and Solomon, the chosen people had longed for a king of similar stature as those two. But none had come forth until the announcement of this king who is righteous. This prophecy from Zechariah that said a king is coming who's going to look like this. And it was an unusual announcement of the coming king. Instead of riding a mule, which would be more of a Jewish tradition, instead of riding a horse or a, a, a war horse as the Romans would, instead this king of righteousness would ride in on a donkey on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And what this signified was an unexpected humility of this king. This king was going to be humble in a way that they had not seen before. And because of the unique nature of the king of righteousness, this surprising humility, I want you to take a second look at Zechariah 9.10, which Christian just read. It's on the screen for us. Where he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Now, in the first century in Jesus' time, the imagery of the rest of Zechariah chapter 9, if you continue, if you continued reading along, would be really easy to connect with. And even this verse, the cutting off of chariots and horses, the expanding of the dominion, releasing prisoners, taking on distant enemies, all of the language would be very familiar. 
And for what we're about to read in Mark 11, little teaser trailer, we mustn't forget that the cry of Hosanna that the people are going to have at the coming of this king, as they cry out Hosanna, which literally means save us in Hebrew, are all set in the foreground against the backdrop of the Roman Empire against the brutality and against the the forcefulness of the Roman Empire. They took what they wanted. They conquered at will. And so the people are crying out in this situation that we're going to look at this morning, save us. But from what? From whom? From Rome? From their enemies? Or was there a bigger plan? And I think that we need to pause and think about this because when the angel spoke to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, He said this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, speaking of Mary, the angel said this, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus. Why? Because he says he will save his people from their sins, not from the domineering nations, not from the situations of war they found themselves in, not from a whole slew of other things. He said, this is the reason why your son, Jesus, is coming. Just how does God plan to do this? To save people from their sins and bring peace on earth as the angels would proclaim on the night the Savior was born. Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. Was there in fact peace on earth at that time? Well, we may not think of it that way, but if the angels declared it, then peace certainly had come. We just don't understand what kind of peace they're talking about. Zechariah 9.10 tells us that that his coming... The Messiah's coming will bring this peace the people are longing for. Now, I believe that there is an an already not yet when you see a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament where you see like the Messiah has come, but we haven't seen him rule in the way that we see like Isaiah describe him as ruling quite yet. We believe in the second coming of Jesus. Amen. We're excited for that. However, I think that sometimes we might even miss the deeper understanding of what it means that he will bring peace on earth. Zechariah 9.10 alludes to this when it says he has come to proclaim peace. The question that ought to be asked regarding the statement, that statement of truth that he has come to bring peace, is how? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1. He says this in Colossians 1.19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, peace has come through the remission of sin because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of his spilled blood. We can celebrate having peace now because of what Jesus has already accomplished. That's pretty good news. That's really good news. You guys, this is how Jesus will become king. This is how Jesus is going to become king. Just as all of the Old Testament foretold and Jesus himself has revealed on the road to Jerusalem, culminating with his statement, all of the teachings leading up to this moment culminated in this statement in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All of his teachings had led up to that moment. Do you understand what I'm here to do? Do you understand what I'm here to accomplish? This is our humble king. 
This is the king of righteousness that Zechariah 9 speaks of. And so here, at this very moment, at the moment where Zechariah said, your king is coming to you and he's going to enter the city on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here in Mark chapter 11, Holy Week begins. The rest of the gospel of Mark is going to be focused on this final week of Jesus' life. An entire third of his gospel on one week. And it's amazing because we get to take a really close and in-depth look at how Jesus lived his final seven days. Well, how he lived and died and then lived again. It's awesome. Let's look at it together. Mark chapter 11, let's begin with verse 1. It reads, when they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem. And into the temple, and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Lord, would you give us the ability to receive your word and to understand in a deeper way? Not only, Lord, the beauty of this moment, Jesus, the beauty of your character and your nature and everything that you say and do, but Lord, help us to understand in a very deep way how this ministers and speaks to us, how this can Form us. Lord, this can mold us to be more like you. Jesus, I pray that we would long for and desire for a character that represents you, Lord, a heart that looks like yours. So, Lord, humble us now as we look at your word, and I ask that you speak so powerfully through your spirit to us. We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's doing so from the east. He's approaching Jerusalem from uh, the hill country, the Mount of Olives, which would be the east of Jerusalem. And these two villages that are mentioned, Bethpage, which literally means house of figs, was a village nearby. Bethany was located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So um, I don't have a map in front of me, but if you can picture Jerusalem, if you look to the right, which would be the east, you would have Bethany on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, which is to that eastern side of Jerusalem. It's directly east and sitting at an elevation about 2,600 feet. If you've ever been to Israel, you know exactly what I'm talking about. To stand on top of the Mount of Olives, you have a beautiful view of the old city of Jerusalem. It kind of just splays out right in front of you. It's a gorgeous view. It seems as we read this, as Jesus approaches this region, that he sent these two disciples into Bethpage uh, to look for this colt and it seems as we read it that there's a plan for Jesus to use this colt already in play. Uh, a really great writer, R.T. France, supposed that the words Jesus told the two disciples he sent ahead were like a prearranged password. 
Like basically, if you say this to these people, they'll let you take it because it already been arranged to be so, which would be supported, I think, by the quick allowance of the cult to be taken in verse 6. But whether Jesus prophetically knew or had prearranged for the cult to be ready for him to ride into Jerusalem, we don't know for sure. We do know this. He is very intentionally planning to enter Jerusalem on this day in a specific way. Jesus is intentionally entering Jerusalem on a specific day in a specific way. And I think that's important for us to remember because he did this to fulfill the prophetic word of his father. He's doing this to prophetically fulfill God's word. He's living out God's will for his life by being very intentional about how he's doing this. Jesus has taught that throughout his ministry, during the Sermon on the Mount, he stated this in Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I love it. He came to fulfill what God had said. He says, I'm here to fulfill every bit of it. Church, do you realize this is a ministry he's entrusted to us by the power of the Holy Spirit? That Jesus has called his people, his church, to continue fulfilling the will of God according to all of history. That he has placed his spirit in us to live that life here now. He's entrusted that ministry to us. And even said, it's better that I go and I send the Holy Spirit. Because the work of the Holy Spirit through his church is to continue doing exactly what God has said would happen in this world until his son's returns. Lord, it's powerful. It's so powerful what he's doing in us. He humbly takes one step after another towards the cross because Jesus knows these three things and these are three things that we can know with absolute certainty as well. Jesus knows what the will of the Father is. He knows what the will of the Father is. He knows what conquering in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And Jesus also knows this. He knows how to bring true and lasting peace. Now, as you think about those three things, how desperately do we need to understand just how to live lives that fulfill those three? How desperately do we need to live lives that walk according to the will of the Father, that know what conquering in the kingdom of heaven looks like, not in the kingdoms of men? And how desperately do we need to walk in a way that brings true and lasting peace, not only to those in direct contact with us, but as the church shines, as a city on a hill, as a light that shines into darkness, how desperately does the world need to see the peace that is in Jesus Christ that shines through the light of the church? When the writer of Hebrews speaks of the establishment of the new covenant through the blood of Christ, he reminds us of the words of Jesus that are quoted from Psalm 40. He says this in Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. Jesus knew what the will of the Father was. He submitted himself fully to it. Church, this should be the cry of our hearts. Father, we have come to do your will. That's what we're here for. Guys, I cannot emphasize enough that this should be our heart when we come to church on Sunday, just as much as it is when we wake up every morning. What a beautiful prayer. God, I've come to do your will. I'm here to do your will. I'm here to see your will be done, to see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. 
It's amazing how often you can go back to looking at the purpose of our lives and tie it right into the Lord's Prayer. As the word of God has already been spoken through the prophet Zechariah, revealing how Messiah the King will enter Jerusalem on this day, so Jesus sets his face to accomplish that word and all of what the prophets spoke about the Messiah. Jesus had come to fulfill the will of God. Every word. And Jesus knew what the will of the Father was, and he was intentional about doing it. And Jesus also knew this, and this is very important for us. And I think it's been important for the church throughout the ages, and no less important for us right now where we are. Jesus knew what conquering in the kingdom of heaven looks like. He knew what it looks like for God to conquer in this world. Later in the week, he'll tell his disciples in the upper room, in John 16, verses 32 through 33, John records this. Indeed, Jesus speaking, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things, notice this line, so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. He knew that conquering in the kingdom of heaven would not look like the world's view of power and victory. When we think about conquering, if you, if you sat in front of a classroom and you said the word conquer and you had people define what that looks like, I wonder what we would hear. But Jesus says, I have conquered the world. He said this on the night that he was betrayed. He said this with his face set to go to the cross That on that very night he would be arrested. That on that very night he would be beaten within an inch of his life and hung on the cross. Jesus spoke these words and says, I have conquered the world. How is he going to do it? By laying his life down. The Apostle John goes on to write in his letter, because he learned from this lesson that Jesus taught him in the upper room in 1 John 5 verses 3 through 4, he says this, For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. And he says in the final verse, this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. This is the victory that's conquered the world, our faith. Jesus exemplifies the faith that the Holy Spirit empowers us to have. This is the faith that conquers and by faith and doing the will of God, there will be peace. As we trust in the Lord and as we allow him to empower us to obey him and walk with him, and as our faith is strengthened, we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. And what comes from that? Peace. This thing that so many of us long for and is available by the Holy Spirit right now in your heart. Jesus knows how to bring true and lasting peace. As Zechariah predicted in in chapter 9, verse 10, he has come to proclaim peace. And as Paul reveals in Colossians, he makes peace through his blood that's shed on the cross. And it brings us to this idea of being justified before God. Of being justified before him. We no longer have an accusation against us. Because of our sin, because of our failure, we've been justified. Paul says this in Romans 4.25. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's so good, you guys. Jesus, as he said in Mark 10, 45, I have come to serve, not be served, and to give my life as a ransom for many. And because of that 
payment on our behalf because of the purchased freedom of us. All those who believe in him, we have now been justified. He was raised for our justification. Jesus has brought, because of what he's about to do, here in this situation in Mark 11, he is going to fulfill every word because his face is set to go to the cross so that he will be raised again, so that we will be justified. And so Jesus, our king, enters Jerusalem with this focus, with this mindset. That's what he has come to do. And so he enters Jerusalem, I believe, with full confidence of what the Father's going to do and what his will is. And intentionality because he knows that everything that the Father has said is true. Church, are we the same? Do you realize that we can have the same confidence? We can have the same intentionality about going about our lives in a way that honors every word that God has spoken because we know that he will bring true peace. That he is going to provide his people everything that we need to live godly lives. As he builds our faith, Jesus just gives us this beautiful picture of this. And so here in verse 7, they bring the colt to him. They bring the colt to Jesus. They throw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And it says, many people spread their clothes. This is verse 8. On the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In no other situation in the Gospels do you see Jesus riding an animal. There's no other situation. If you look at Jesus' life, he's walking everywhere. So if for no other reason... We should take note of this because it's unusual. This is an unusual practice for Jesus. He's doing something out of the ordinary. This is a deliberate departure of his normal process, and the intent was so that it would be noticed. And here's why I say that. It might have been possible for Jesus and his disciples to arrive inconspicuously to Jerusalem. They could have slipped into town. You know, they could have found a way to get into town without being noticed if they wanted to. It's the week before the festival. It's the week before Passover. So there's a lot of people coming into town. Josephus writes about all the lambs that they would be bringing into town this week ahead of time because of all the lambs that would be slaughtered for the festival. And he he even said this, he said, as Jesus was riding in, there must have been herds of lambs coming into the city as Jesus, the Lamb of God, is riding into Jerusalem. Now there's an image. But you think about this, they could have found a quieter way, but he didn't. He chose to arrive in a way that would be noticed And the way that he's doing it in the shadow of the practice of Roman generals who would enter cities as the conquering general with their war horses. With all of these people that they may have taken captive, all these items, all this loot that they had spoiled. Having that picture from the nation that was ruling the known world at the time, Jesus enters Jerusalem to the celebratory shouts of the impoverished who threw before him the clothes from their backs and branches of trees. This is how the king of righteousness enters. I don't think that we can oversell the amount of humility here that God himself has as he rides in 
not looking anything like what worldly success looks like, but looking everything like the Savior that we so desperately need, doesn't he? This is the humble king. And this was the will of the father for his son to present himself in this way. As the crowd shout, Hosanna, we talked about that, save now, they're reciting a messianic psalm. They're reciting Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. That's what they're shouting out. They're reciting Psalm 118. But notice this. Verse 10 of Mark 11 isn't connected to Psalm 118. Look at the text. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The only gospel that includes that note. Now what's interesting to me about this is not that they would say that because it's totally true. It's it's a true statement. But it's fascinating to me coming from the text that we studied last week. Who remembers what we talked about last week at the end of Mark chapter 10? It was Bartimaeus, the blind man in Jericho. And what had Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Interesting. I wonder who started this cry. I wonder who yelled this. I don't know. But it's interesting to me that the cry of this blind man who had received his sight, and it tells us the end of Mark chapter 10, that he follows Jesus. Jesus says, go, your faith has given you your sight. And what happens? He says, and he followed Jesus. Where was Jesus going? Jerusalem. This next moment that happened here. Do we know for sure that Bartimaeus was there? I don't know, but it makes sense to me that if our lives had been radically changed by Jesus, we would be there shouting out his glory for everyone to hear. There should be a radical change of heart and a radical change in our lives when we have gone from blind to seeing. When we have gone from naked to clothed. When we have gone from lame to being able to walk. This is a powerful transition of life for a man like this. And I just think that it's interesting that we can look at this text and say, I want my life to be so given to the Lord because of what he's done for me that you would have to lock me up to keep me away from this moment. No matter where he is, what he's doing, or how he's doing it, label me with Jesus. Put me with Jesus. I'm with him. And if there's nothing to put on the colt, if there's no saddle, I'll give him my jacket. In order to honor something you do to honor a king, for him to walk in on this road, riding on this colt, he can have my jacket or I'll find something to cover the road with, some way to honor him, some way to help people realize that this is the one they're looking for. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me and hear, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And Jesus rides in, and I want to stick to this text because I think it's important that we, that we focus in on what Jesus does next. And the other Gospels will add some other things and point out some other details. But Mark goes straight from this moment, straight from this moment as they descend the Mount of Olives on the west side, as the road would wind straight down there, and there's a gate at the bottom across the Kidron that you can go right into Jerusalem and right up to the temple. 
It says that Jesus went into Jerusalem. He enters in, he goes into the temple, and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he goes out to Bethany with the 12. He goes back across the Kidron, back up the Mount of Olives and to the other side. That's where Bethany was. What's interesting about this is Mark uses the word as he goes into the temple, Hieron, which means temple area. It doesn't mean the building. It means he walked around the area. He was looking at it. Apparently, the crowd had quickly dispersed, and only the disciples had remained with Jesus. And it says he looks around, looked around at everything, not as a tourist that's viewing precincts for the first time or, or details that he'd never seen before. Jesus had been to Jerusalem before. But he's examining it as the sovereign Lord. He's examining the temple as a sovereign Lord to see whether it's fulfilling its divinely appointed mission. You're like, how do we know that? Because of what he does on the next day. It's because of what Jesus does on the next day. And everyone's like, he goes into the temple and creates a ruckus. You're right. But he does it for a reason. He does it for a reason. The examination was in preparation for this prophetic act of cleansing. Yet again, Jesus is 100% on mission to do the will of God. And even though the day had now gotten late and he couldn't do it that day, he will return and do it the next day and cleanse the temple. He delays his action, but only for a night. I think by means of two dramatic actions, the royal procession, outside the city walls and the demonstration in the temple that Jesus makes sure of this. And R.T. France says this, Jesus makes sure that his arrival is noticed. Both actions claim a unique status and authority for Jesus, and neither is calculated to win the goodwill of the religious authorities. I love that statement. None of these things is done to calculate the goodwill of the religious authorities. And we know how the religious authorities felt about Jesus. We know what they've tried to do thus far, discrediting him, trying to put him down in front of the people, trying to have him killed at different times, and yet again, their desires, and this is why there's been so much fear for the crowd around Jesus leading up to Jerusalem, is because their desire is still to put him to death. It's still to see him die. But Jesus does it anyway. He goes anyway. Why? Because he knows what the will of the Father is. He knows what conquering in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And he's come to bring true and lasting peace. You see, for the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross. He despised the shame. That's what the writer of Hebrews would say in chapter 12. See, Jesus had his eyes on something bigger. And that was the glory of the Father despite the circumstances he was in. Church, this is where we need to take note. The king has entered Jerusalem. He's intentional about all these things. And as his church, we need to be intentional about those same things. I need to be intentional about doing the will of the Father. And I think that we have to consider the following questions together. What's the will of the Father for our lives? What's his will for us? He's called us to love him, to know him, to completely surrender to him by walking in obedience to his word. He's empowered us for this task by the Holy Spirit. Not to pull from outside sources, but yes, you can. It's funny, like we, we have this mentality like, I can't, I can't. Yes, you can. 
You absolutely can. If you say you can't as a Christian walk according to the will of God, you're saying he can't. You're not saying you can't. You're telling God what he's capable of doing. Don't do that. He will work it through you. However, we have to submit ourselves to him. We have to completely surrender to him by walking in obedience to his word. It's been said so wisely to me over the last couple of years by a church member here. There's a difference between recognizing Jesus as Lord and making him Lord of your life. In order for us to have this power to walk in this strength of the Holy Spirit, Jesus must be Lord of our lives. How will we, how will he conquer through our lives? How will Jesus conquer through our lives? How is he going to accomplish this? First Peter 2, verses 4 through 5 says this, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It would take me a whole nother session to like unpack that. That's amazing. But do you get that this is how we're, he's going to conquer through our lives? He is building us up. He's assembling a, a building, a temple, which is the church. He's using us to do it. And he set us all upon what foundation? It says it there in 1 Peter 2, if you're familiar with the passage. Christ, the cornerstone. The foundation stone. He says, I'm building all of you together into this big temple that worships God on the foundation of myself. Peter learned this from Jesus in Matthew 16. Verses 16 through 18, Jesus says to Peter, Simon Peter, or Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of hell will not be able to stand against what he builds. Is the church a building or a people? You can say it out loud. Is the church a building or a people? It's us. We are the church. So when Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock, what did Peter understand this rock to be? He says it in in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says the foundation stone is Jesus. And he's building us onto that foundation himself. And so he says this, I will build the church. I will build the people. I have a body. I'm going to build us up together. And the gates of hell will not overpower it. I ask you again, how will he conquer through our lives? That's how. He is going to build us up into this house, this church, this group of people that the gates of hell cannot stand against. And you're like, yeah, we're tough. No, you're not. Jesus is. But if you think about it, it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. You guys, he's building us up to be a people that hell cannot stand against. Why are we ever afraid? We don't have to be. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what happens in the world. Because Jesus Christ has built us together on himself. Nothing can stand against that. And because of what he's done, and I think this hits us really deep in the heart, we have to ask this question then, how does he bring peace to our hearts and extend that peace to others? 
You don't have to raise hands, but how many of us are in a regular struggle to find peace? To be at peace. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says this, And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. Amen? (laughs) He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. (sighs) (laughs) Shivers. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says, then Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. It's the next slide. Peace with God. (laughs) You guys, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we get peace? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we have peace. If you're looking for it, that's where it is. If anyone's listening on YouTube, some way down the road, and you're scrolling through Transform Ministries, and you're like, I think I'll listen to this message, and you don't have peace, that's how you get it. And every person in this room should be thrilled with what God's doing in their lives because we have peace acceptable to us in no matter what the circumstance we're going through. Because God has given it to us through his Son. We have obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I don't know if you've heard encouraging verses grouped together for a while, but I really think that's a great set. I really think that's a group of verses that just builds our hearts with like, yeah, it's going to be okay because of what God has done through Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, our extension of this salvation we have in Christ is this message of reconciliation, and we should never be humdrum or depressed about it. So I found this piece, and I just wanted to tell you about it. It's pretty great. I'm not saying, like, run up to someone and be like, hi, and, like, yell in their face, but, I mean, there should be some excitement about what we have in Christ. It's exciting. It's thrilling to think about. We're to implore the world. We're to be ambassadorial to the world and say, listen, be reconciled to God. Do you have any idea the state you're in as compared to where you could be in Christ? Do you have any idea how much he loves you? Do you have any idea how much he wants you? That he died for you and has extended the offering of peace and family to you through his own son so that you can be a part of his body. The doors are open. Jesus, the humble king, a beautiful peace offering. It's brought us into the family of God. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says with this, with this truth, go and make disciples of all nations. Let no people group get beyond your reach and tell them the good news that Jesus Christ has saved the lost from their sin. By believing in him, they can have life through his name. Make disciples and baptize them 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit this morning, we get to do another baptism. It's so exciting, you guys. I, it's, uh, it's overwhelming. Elena's going to come up, and she's going to be baptized this morning. And you don't have to yet. But um, she just like, barrel rolls in. Woo! Like, hold on. Um, you guys, but I just want to remind you, first of all, baptism is very exciting because it's celebrating. It's outwardly celebrating an inward reality. You guys, as Paul said in Romans 6, 3 through 4, he says this, All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. And then when they come out of that water, that's what you're seeing. This is a newness of life. This is a new creation. All the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's an outward demonstration of an inward reality. And it's something to be celebrated, to be cheered for, to be excited about sharing together as a church body. And I don't know if you guys have realized this, but so many people have been baptized this year. And that excites me because I I see God doing something. I see God doing a powerful work in the church. And I see him getting us excited to go and to tell the truth of the gospel with joy and excitement because we're, we're thrilled about being a part of this family. It shouldn't depress you to go to church. And I don't think it does for you guys. It should never be that way. It should be an exciting thing. I get to be with my family. You know, when Jesus said a little while back and he was talking and Peter was like, we've given up everything for you, Lord. And he's like, so what, what do we get since we've given up all these things, right? And Jesus said, no one has given up father, mother, brother, sister, lands, Rolls Royce, and has not, has not gotten back, he said, a hundredfold. And we, we have to stop and think about that. And I didn't have to think about it long because I get to stand up here and look at you guys. You guys are that blessing for me. You guys are the family that I never knew I had that that I've been brought into and become a part of. You guys, you can't put a price tag on that. And this is what we're inviting people into. It's salvation from their sin. It's into belonging. It's into the household of God. Worship team, would you guys come on up? Water baptism, you guys, this is a physical demonstration of the spiritual reality within. And I just want to say this is we're going to go back and we're going to do a baptism. We're going to sing praise and worship to our king together. If there are any who have not been baptized and you would like to come forward and be baptized this morning, the water is really comfy. And I promise I'm not going to hold you down because this is all about celebrating life, not death. <laughs> we're, we're representing that, left, that death has happened, but we're going to celebrate that life. I'll get you right out of the water. Don't worry. So let's pray together, and then we'll do a baptism. We'll sing praises together. Father, thank you for these people. I thank you that this is my family, Lord, that um, we get to do life together. Lord, there is no part of your body. If you are the head, then we all are parts of the body, and I am one of those parts as well. And Lord, I thank you that we get to live life together as a church in this way that we get to walk through day by day, not just here on Sunday. Lord, we celebrate here because this is the beginning of the week. This is the Lord's day. This is the day that we want to declare as yours and celebrate you and be equipped to go into our week and to minister and to do exactly what you called us to do at the end of the gospel of Matthew, Lord. We want to make disciples. But God, as we go about this, this life that we live together, 
Lord, this is just the beginning. The gathering here, it matters. It's special. It's what we see the church do ever since Jesus, you ascended. But we also recognize that day by day, we need to be encouraging one another. As it says in Hebrews 3, encourage one another daily. So Lord, it doesn't end here. We're just celebrating in a group today what we will do for the rest of the week together in community. And so Lord, I pray that we would look after each other, love one another, that we would celebrate together, Lord, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but Jesus, because of you, we are now alive. We have been justified by grace through faith. So Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning to celebrate just that. And we worship you and we praise you for all that you're doing here. It's to you that all the glory must go. And so we worship you and we thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. And we ask that you be glorified. As some are baptized this morning and as we sing your praise, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.